Well, good morning once again. Welcome to New Life and to our uh, continuing journey through the book of Daniel. Um, I must confess this morning, you know, e- each week I feel like I want to say there's just so much in here. I really hope that you've taken the time to plug into a life group um, to unpack this and to find all the, the various application points to our lives because there's no way um, that I can adequately cover this on a, on a Sunday morning. Uh, the more time you spend in these chapters, the more um, there is to dig the, the, the truths and um, uh, the reasons for praise of our God are just so numerous. And this morning is no exception, so I feel very inadequate in bringing you the word this morning. So my challenge to you is go home and study, read, uh, and process this together in community. Um, but I am excited about this morning. I'm probably going to stick pretty close to my notes because I want us to get out of here at a reasonable time. And I have cut and cut and cut and cut, and it's still longer than I would like, but I will try to keep you engaged to the best of my ability. If you read the uh, weekly update that went out, uh, I said something in there and then added a quotation from Alistair Begg, and this is what I said. I said, "A, a person's character is not forged in adversity so much as it is revealed in adversity. And we see this clearly in the life of Daniel um, as we have progressed through it and now come to chapter 6. And we see it because Daniel took his faith seriously as a teenager and as a young adult. And because he did so, he was able to withstand enormous pressure that was applied to him later in life to compromise his faith. As Alistair Begg writes in his book, Brave by Faith, what we are in our early years, we will be in our later years. If you think you're going to be something at 80 that you're not now, then you better start playing catch up. Don't assume that you can be half-hearted now and then somehow make a big push later on. We're not guaranteed a tomorrow to begin with. But even if you did live an additional three, four, five decades, there's, there's, there's no, no way, no way that you're gonna be able to do that. So Daniel, we see, remained faithful as an old man because he was faithful as a young man. And and that's something that if you're still really relatively young, you need to take to heart. You need to take to heart. These are the formative years for your life. They're the foundation in which the rest of your life will be built. So we come now to Daniel chapter 6. Some 70 plus years have now elapsed since Daniel was first uh, taken captive and brought to Babylon. The Babylonian Empire has now fallen. The Medo-Persian Empire now rules the world, and the Jews are still in exile in Babylon. 
And after 70 years in captivity, it would have been easy for Daniel and all the other exiles to give up hope, to give up hope that they would ever see their homeland. Perhaps maybe some of them thought that with the fall of Babylon, maybe this, this means they get to go home. But instead of that, they just changed one empire for another, and they were still in captivity in Babylon. There's no doubt that probably by this time many people decided to settle down, settle in, and um, just, just you know, realize that, hey, this is our lot in life now. There's, there's no going back to the way things were. And I would imagine there were probably more than a few Jews who maybe had given up on God altogether and given up on his promises to them. I mean, after all, 70 years is a long time to wait. But they had no idea how close they really were. But that's a study for another time. During these 70 years, God demonstrated over and over that he is in control, that he reigns supreme over the kingdoms of this world and over the kings and princes of the earth. He has proven that he is able to deliver his people from their enemies and from death. And Daniel understood this. That's why now, even as an old man, he serves well and stands firm. If, if you don't believe this stuff, then, then you're going to get slack. You're going to grow slack. You're not going to give it your all, but that's not what Daniel does. He serves well and stands firm, even into his 80s. And he demonstrates for us what it means to finish well. You know, as, I've, as I'm getting older... Um, that becomes the focus of my life. I want to finish well. doesn't mean anything for, for me to start well if I don't finish well. I want to finish well. When we're younger, we don't think about it. We think we got a long time to go. But t trust me, it goes by like that. Right? It does. Daniel's story in life served as an encouragement to the exiles of his day, but he also serves as an encouragement to us, for we too are in exile. We are aliens and strangers in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we long for the day that we get to go home. Daniel's Life and story is a reminder to us to trust in God and to remain faithful in him no matter the cost. Chapter 6 teaches us that faithful obedience is costly. Faithful obedience is costly, but God is able to deliver those who faithfully obey. Let's pray. Lord God, I do ask for your help this morning as I bring this message, and I ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen us in the faith, that we would be pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide here this morning, I pray. Amen. Now, if in going through chapter 6, it feels familiar to you, it's because it is. Chapter 6 mirrors chapter 3. 
I, I mentioned in an earlier message that Daniel utilizes a literary device called a chiasm. Um, that chapters two through six follow this chiastic structure, which is quite amazing. And so what we see is chapter six parallels chapter three. But if you look closely at chapter six, what you will find is that chapter six also contains a chiastic structure which makes it quite remarkable as a literary device. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do want to show you what I mean by that. And you can see up here how it just kind of weaves its way here. It builds, and then it comes back. And each of these points, verses 1 through 3, verse 28, parallel each other. 25 and 4 through 9 parallel each other. 10 through 13 and 24. And you can see that structure um, as, as, as this story is unfolded to us. And it's just amazing. It's not just the chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And it is within the chapters themselves that we see this particular structure. Now, that may help you as an outline for this particular chapter. A word about Darius, though, because you'll notice there it says, you know, Daniel is favored by King Darius. Darius makes a decree. Darius is exceedingly glad. Darius makes a decree again. And then Daniel prospers during the reign of Darius. The identity of Darius the Mede and his relationship to King Cyrus is uncertain. And some people have used this as a reason to discount his very existence and therefore the biblical account. Darius, and the reason why is Darius is never mentioned in extra biblical sources. So he's not mentioned outside of the Bible. So if you discount the Bible to begin with, then it's no wonder you don't think that he ever existed. Um, but the reality is, um, up until recently, we didn't know that King Belteshazzar ever existed. See, that's the wonderful thing about archaeology, is that archaeologists are constantly discovering new discoveries. They're, they're always uncovering things that had been hidden, people and civilizations that we didn't think ever really existed. Later, we find out that they did exist. But, but this does present a little bit of a challenge to us because we understand that Cyrus was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And here we're talking about Darius the Mede. So how do we explain this? So without wandering too far into the weeds, let me uh, give you some possible explanations. First, it is possible that Cyrus and Darius are actually the same person. Uh, Cyrus's mother was Median. His father was Persian. So it would not have been unusual back then for him to have both a Median name and a Persian name, Darius being the Median name. And the word Darius itself means royal one. So it could have functioned as a title rather than a proper name. Now, if either of those two views are correct, then when you look at the end of the chapter at verse 28, 
um, the alternate, alternate translation would probably be better than what we have in most Bibles. So it would read like this. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now what's interesting too in thinking about this, and by the way, this, this is one of the reasons why it's like once you start diving in, I say you just can't stop and you uncover these things. And Cyrus died in 530 BC, okay? Why is that important? Because he was 62 years old um, when he conquered Babylon. So at five. 30 BC, he was 70. At 62, he conquered Babylon. Why is that significant? Because if you look back at chapter 5, verse 31, what do you see? It reports that Darius the Mede was 62. And he's the only person in the book of Daniel whose age is mentioned. So again, not not saying definitively that this is the case, but that's one of the arguments for Cyrus and Darius being one and the same. Another view is that uh, Darius was one of Cyrus's generals who actually conquered Babylon and was then appointed as governor or king there. Uh, and if you see at the last verse, uh, if you have your Bibles, the last verse of chapter five, it says, Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years of age. Well, now I've just muddied the waters, right? Because this idea of him receiving the kingdom seems to imply that he was appointed to be the governor or the king. Well, by whom, you might ask? Cyrus. Another view is that Darius might be um, Kimbusis, um, who was Cyrus's son who reigned uh, from 530 to 522 BC. So all of that to say is, I mean, now that your head is spinning, is to say, you don't have to worry about people who try to disprove God's word because of the lack of information or evidence. Most of the time we can just say, hang on to your seats, wait a while, <laughs> and, and we'll find it. Because that's what's happened as science progresses, as we're able to uncover history. But in any event, the uncertainty of his identity is not a valid reason to dismiss him. So as we look at the story, you don't have a legitimate reason for discounting Daniel's story here in chapter 6. So let's open up our Bibles. Turn to chapter 6, if you're not there already. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Verse 1. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Here we see the, the faithfulness and the integrity of Daniel. 
Daniel is now serving in his third administration in a foreign land, which is just amazing to think about it. And once again, he is held in honor, high regard, and he is given great position within the kingdom. He was one of three high officials that oversaw 120 satraps or, or local governors. And these satraps were to give an account to them so that the king might suffer no loss, meaning that he wouldn't suffer the loss of territory, that he wouldn't suffer the loss of revenue, whether it be because enough taxes weren't collected or that these satraps were embezzling money from the king. And so needless to say, the people that you would choose at the top ought to be people who are trustworthy, people that you can put in that particular position. And Daniel, by virtue of his skill, his integrity, his character, his work ethic, he is head and shoulders over everybody else. And that's why the king was about to put him in charge of everything, to put him over everything. And, and I would say that, hey, if you want a steward to watch over your money, um, don't you want somebody that's trustworthy, that's honest, that's faithful? That's Daniel. The king knew he could trust him. Now, there's a lot of application in this chapter. One of them is, is that even though Daniel lived in a godless culture, he found a way to serve God and serve the state and the people within it. He... He, it's because he took the command of God seriously found in Jeremiah, which I mentioned a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 29, 7. It says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find welfare. And if Daniel could find a way to do both things, to, to honor God by obeying God, but also by seeking the welfare of the city, by serving the state and the people well, then we can do it too. At least we ought to. And I was thinking about how our attitude is some, somehow the complete opposite of what Daniel's was. You know, perhaps rather than demonizing our leaders, maybe we ought to be praying for them. Maybe rather than throwing stones at politicians, educators, and entertainers, or, or running from them, maybe we ought to engage our culture and find ways to improve it. I mean, certainly we can pray, but we can do more than that, can't we? We can make a difference right where we live, right where we work, if we so choose. I think Beg in, in his book may have mentioned this, but I was just thinking about, you know, the scripture that says that, you know, whatsoever you do, do as unto the Lord. So you think about what it is that you do, your vocation, what you're called to do by God. If you're a teacher, teach to the glory of God. If you're a doctor or a nurse, 
love people, treat people to the glory of God. If, if, if you're an accountant, I don't know, what do you do? Count to the glory of God. <laughs> if you're a bus driver, drive those little ones around to the glory of God. If, 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 our, if our mindset is right, if we're doing what God has called us to do and we're doing it with joy in our hearts and we're doing it because we want to be the best at what it is that God has called us to do, we will do, we will end up succeeding in doing what Daniel was doing here. Verse 4. It says, then, Dan, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so here we see the envy and the jealousy of these high officials. You see, Daniel's rise to power and prominence did not sit well with them. They were jealous and envious of Daniel. They wanted the power, the prestige. They wanted the promotions. And they felt slighted. And, you know, this, this, this word is a theme in this book, but they were full of pride. And now their pride is wounded. And the truth is, we too can be filled with sinful pride. It can be subtle and not so subtle. We might see ourselves as smarter, wiser, or more gifted than others. We may think that we're a better employee, a better parent, a better Christian, than those around us. We might be quick to judge others while failing to see the log that is in our own eye. We can feel slighted when other people are recognized and promoted and applauded and we're not. And then, adding insult to injury, we become bitter and resentful, all because we feel like we've gotten the short end of the stick. Like I said, it, it can be subtle, it can be not so subtle, but I think we all wrestle with it. These officials couldn't stand Daniel's rise to power and prominence. They despised him, and they sought for a way to get rid of him. And they could find no grounds for their complaint. Wouldn't that be an awesome testimony to have? That you would live your life in such a way, you do your job so well that people... Seek your downfall. Rather than doing the hard work themselves, they want to cut you down to size so they can feel good about themselves. And wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to hear somebody, we can't find anything on you. There's, there's nothing. There's, there's, there's nothing. There's, there's, you're not slack on, on the job. You, you, you're doing everything that you're supposed to do. See, Daniel was honest, he was hardworking, he was faithful in all that he did. He was a man of integrity. And I think, again, Daniel has a lot to teach us. This is the kind of person God is calling us to be, to be faithful people, to be people 
of integrity, with integrity. We need to show up on work, at work on time. Don't take more time for lunch than you're allowed. Be accurate with the punch card when you're punching in. Put in an honest day's work and work hard. Go above and beyond what everybody else is doing, knowing that God sees. Even if nobody else does, God sees. God will reward. The truth is, other people do see. Only we don't always get the praise from them that we would like to get. Sometimes we get persecution. I mean, consider Daniel. The officials, the satraps, they had nothing on him. They couldn't accuse him of any impropriety, of any wrongdoing. They couldn't accuse him, like I said, of being slack on the job or not meeting certain standards. They couldn't find any dirt on him, not even a piece of lint. Nothing. And it frustrated them. So they conceded that the only way that they could get rid of him was to use his faith against him, to pit his allegiance to God against his allegiance to the king. And that's exactly what they did. Verse six. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement, you might want to underline that, to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Now, we know how hard it is to get political rivals to agree on anything, right? Yet, 122 wicked, self-serving government officials were able to lay aside their differences and come together and unite together to bring about Daniel's downfall. And now Daniel makes a point of this and repeats that phrase, came by agreement, three times in this chapter. That's why I said to underline it. Three times They come by agreement. And the story reminds us a lot of chapter 3, but it also foreshadows what happens or what would happen to Jesus right before his crucifixion. If you recall, the Jews and the Romans and King Herod and Pontius Pilate set aside their differences to seek the same outcome the death of Jesus. In Luke chapter 23, verse 12, we read, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, they had been at enmity with each other. It's it's interesting how hatred for God and the things of God can bring enemies who hate God together in their hate 
for God. So these men came together. They concocted a plan to kill Daniel. Notice that they said all the high officials, prefects, satraps, counselors, and governors were agreed. All? Wasn't Daniel a high official? Certainly he wouldn't have agreed to this plan, so they lied. They knew that the king respected Daniel and favored him, so they implied that Daniel was in agreement too. Oh, if Daniel's in agreement, it must be a, a good idea. And, and by the way, they weren't merely presenting a suggestion to the king. They, they didn't come to him and say, hey, king, we got this great idea for, for you to consider. They came with the document in hand, ready to be signed. And they knew exactly how to get the king to do what they wanted him to do. And so they come to the king with this, oh, king, you're such a great king, such a wonderful king. Oh, we just love you. And we think it's a great idea that everybody know how great you really are. And so I think what we ought to do here is let's, let's go for 30 days where nobody can pray to any god or any man but you, oh, king, because you are such a great god, a great king course, the king falls right into their trap. I mean, you can almost just picture Darius thinking to himself, wow, I kind of like that idea. People praying to me and only me. But why 30 days? You know, why not forever? Why not a year, six months or whatever? Well, I think the obvious reason is, is that they needed enough time to catch Daniel in the act. But I also think that these men realized um, that they didn't want to keep this injunction indefinitely. They, they had their gods, too, that they prayed to. And they knew that one slip-up would cost them their life. And so they put a constraint upon this decree and several times in this chapter, we're, we're reminded that once the decree is signed, it's irrevocable. It's, it's like they're, they're trying to get this across to the king. King, just remember, you do this thing, it's irrevocable. You can't change it. Well, technically you could. I think I mentioned this earlier. You, you could change it, but not without losing face. And I think that's what these men are trying to get at here. Is, is king, once you do this, you, you're locked in. There's, no, there's gonna be no easy way out for you here. It was considered irrevocable or permanent and the king should have known better. The king should have thought for a moment, but wait a minute, where's Daniel? I don't see Daniel here, but he didn't. And the reason why is obvious. He, he succumbed to his own pride. He allowed himself to be swayed. Verse 10, so when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So here we see Daniel's response to the signing of the document. The king foolishly signs the document. And when Daniel finds out that he did, what's he do? He goes home. He goes upstairs, 
He gets on his knees in front of an open window and he prays. And he prays. Now, at first glance, you might be tempted to think, you know, man, he's being pretty rebellious. He's flaunting the king's decree. But that's not what he's doing. Not if you read the, the rest of the verse. He's simply doing what he always did. Three times a day, he broke away for times of intentional, purposeful prayer. That's where the phrase says, as he had done previously. This indicates that this was a lifestyle for, for Daniel. This was a habit that he developed from when he was a young man, and it carried right into his old, old years, his old age. I don't know what your prayer life is like. I know that um, mine for years was pretty stale. Um, it's still not where I, I want it to be, where I think it needs to be. Um, but if you have not cultivated a prayer life, a consistent prayer life, now's the time to start. Um, I'm not saying that you need to do what Daniel did. You know, go upstairs to your room, open up your windows, figure out which way is Jerusalem, you know, bow down and all of that. But I, I do think that it's important that, that, that prayer not be haphazard. That we, we just don't go through the day without thought of having a time of intentional, purposeful prayer. I, and I realize we pray at meals, we pray as we're driving, we pray, you know, for our teams to win basketball games and things like that, you know. But, but I'm talking about praying because we want to commune with God, that we have set aside a, a part of our day to commune with God. And one of the things that, that I've done to help me with it, and I don't do it perfectly, um, is I have scheduled times of prayer in my calendar. Um, during the week, I have slots set aside for prayer. Now, sometimes I've got meetings and things like that, and I can't do that. But I have an alarm that goes off that reminds me, this is my time to meet with God. Maybe that will work for you. But the point here is, is that Daniel wasn't putting on a show. He wasn't being rebellious. He was simply doing what he had always done. He had established prayer as a priority. And he scheduled it into his day so that three times a day, I would imagine this would be morning, noon, and night where he prays to the Lord. Verse 11 it says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Of course they knew he did that. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said, before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, tinge of racism there, 
pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. So they observed him for a while. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. You know, scripture tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is a given that the wicked will try to trip up believers to try to do what these men here did to Daniel. And Daniel remained faithful, even though he knew there might be a price to pay for his obedience. But he didn't flinch. He didn't blink. He just did what he always did. Daniel was willing to risk his life to do what was right he chose to obey God rather than to obey man and suffer the consequences. And like Daniel, we too must choose in advance to obey regardless of the cost. We can't wait to the moment of truth. We can't wait till we're thrown into the fire or into the storm and hope that maybe we'll make the right decision. That's why it's so important that at a young age, we begin to take our faith seriously and we start to say, I am going to develop the character that God wants me to have. By his grace, by his power, I will be the man or the woman that God has called me to be. Then, verse 15, these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. I mean, the king just said that, didn't he? Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and his sleep fled from him. And here you have the most powerful man in the world who is absolutely powerless to stop what is happening to his friend. Daniel is thrown into the den of lions and all the king can do is hope and tell Daniel that he hopes his God will deliver him. And then a stone is placed over the entrance and then it's sealed with the signet ring of the king and his lords. And this was designed to ensure that nobody tampers with the stone, that nobody were to remove it as to um, free Daniel from the den of lions. Now, you have to remember, Daniel is a type of Christ. He foreshadows Christ to us. And what a picture we have here. The scene powerfully foreshadows Jesus' death and burial. 
And then the king returns to his palace where he doesn't eat or sleep and he refuses all entertainment. The king is distraught. I, I imagine he was beating himself up over the head thinking, how did I allow myself to get played like this? Then verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Wow. So we see in the coming verses both salvation and judgment. The king arrives here at the break of day hoping that Daniel's God once again proves that he is the one true and living God. And as we read these verses, we can't help but picture that early morning when Mary Magdalene and the other women came to the tomb only to find that the stone had been rolled away. Once again, we see that God does not always keep us from harm's way. He doesn't always keep us from the fire or from the storm. But like the men in chapter three, he does promise to walk with us through it. Daniel was in a den full of lions and an angel appears in the den with him and he shuts the lion's mouth See, we can rest in God's power. We can rest in his sovereignty. We can rest in his love. Our response is simply to trust him. To trust him. Faithful obedience is costly. But God is able to deliver all those who faithfully obey. Let's speed towards the end. Verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. What we have here is a beautiful picture of the resurrection. Just as Daniel came out of the den of lions, Jesus came out of the tomb. But we also have a terrible and horrific picture of judgment in these verses. The very men who sought to destroy Daniel 
were themselves destroyed. And not only them, but their wives and their children. God, who sees all, who knows all, turned the tables on these men and brought down upon their heads the very scheme that they sought to kill Daniel with. It's kind of reminiscent of Haman from the book of Esther, isn't it? One day, God will judge the world and all those who have rejected him in his kingdom and a fate far worse than being thrown to a den of lions or being torn to pieces by lions awaits them. Now, we may be tempted here to think, wow, God's judgment is pretty severe. Well, it's only because we don't really understand sin. We don't really understand how detestable, how horrific, how vile our sin really is before the Lord. And and here's the damnable truth. The entire human race is guilty of it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. The entire human race is guilty and under the judgment of God apart from the gospel of Christ, apart from his redemptive work on the cross. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for the cross. Praise God for the resurrection. But even as we rejoice in what God has done for us through his death and resurrection, this is also a sorrowful side to our salvation. When you think about it, I like what Sinclair Ferguson says here, said about Daniel, he says, in a fallen and sinful world, there is a somber side to the salvation of God's people. The dark side to Daniel's deliverance is the judgment that falls on those who had sought to destroy the kingdom of God. They and their entire families, even wives and children, were cast into the den of lions and immediately attacked and devoured. You see, the dark side of our deliverance is that God will judge all those who oppose him in his kingdom. Their only hope is to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. It's their only hope. And those who refuse to do so like these men, will perish. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. To the end. He delivers and rescues. 
He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is reminiscent of how chapter 4 ends with King Nebuchadnezzar making the decree and writing it to the, everyone everywhere. And once again, another decree is made by yet another king who orders that all those who reside in his kingdom everywhere tremble before the God of Daniel. He declares Daniel's God to be the one true and living God whose kingdom will never be destroyed, whose dominion will never come to an end. And the chapter simply ends with us being told that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and Cyrus, or if you prefer, the reign of Darius slash Cyrus. Remember, character is not so much forged in adversity as it is revealed in adversity. Don't wait until you're in your 80s before you get serious about following Jesus. Follow him now. Follow him today. Follow him tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the day after that. Be faithful now so that you too can serve well and stand firm. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement and the challenge that this chapter presents to us in the many ways that we ought to find application in our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, pray that you would do a deep work in our hearts. If there's anyone here or watching online that has yet to surrender their life to you, that today would be the day that they do so and that they would tell somebody about it. And Lord, for those of us who have already stepped over the line and embraced you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that you would ruin us for anything less than your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.